Dear friends, we come now to the very last step of Christ's exaltation. And our catechism asks us in question 55, as you can see it on the outline there, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And the answer given us is, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Well, last time, my friends, we saw Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. You'll remember that we learned from Scripture at that time that the sitting at the right hand of the Father is a temporary thing. Remember from Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, I place your enemies under your footstool. So he sits at the right hand of God, sitting because the mission has already been accomplished in the sense that the victory is assured. Christ has come to earth. He has died and given his life for his people. He's risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting until that last enemy shall be destroyed. The last enemies yet need to be destroyed. And then he will come up off that throne. And he will return. He will turn over the kingdom to the Father. And then the mission is not only accomplished, but it is completed. The last enemy to be destroyed, remember what it was? The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And that's too what our catechism reflects that teaching, right? When it says in the last sentence of our catechism, question 55, Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation. That will happen at the second coming of Christ. And this is the last step, then, that we said of Christ's exaltation. Remember his descent, right? His humble birth, his life, his being judged by Pontius Pilate, his death, and then his descent into hell. And then the exaltation began, his resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at God's right hand. And then the one step of that exaltation that has yet to happen is his second coming. That is the one thing on that descent and on the ascent, the one thing that is yet future. It is something that we're yet looking for. Christ's return, when he will have destroyed all his enemies. Now, look at the question that we're given in our catechism. And I want you to notice how the question itself is worded. Notice that the question given us is, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And maybe if, you're, if, you, if you have a pen out, you can circle that word comfort, because that's important. You know, friends, the Heidelberg Catechism was given for the purpose of instructing us But really, it has a higher purpose. It has a higher purpose, and that is to comfort us. In fact, how many of us can remember the very first... I don't even have to ask that question. Everybody knows the first question and answer of the catechism, right? What is the question? What is your only 
comfort in life and in death. And in every step of the, of, the, of the way so far, you notice how our catechism is always bringing us back to that point. What advantage is it to you that Christ ascended into heaven? We had some weeks back. What advantage is it to you that Christ rose from the dead? And now we have, what comfort is it to you? In fact, I would say that our catechism is less concerned. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it like that because certainly the catechism wants us to understand correctly Christ's coming. But it, it, it is less concerned with that and more concerned with to, to properly comfort the people of God, to bring them to that place of comfort and to ensure that we don't deceive ourselves on this point of comfort, thinking that we should receive comfort when we shouldn't. To my, you might say to make sure that we have a well-grounded comfort, a comfort that will not disappoint us in the end. And so how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? You might say, couldn't the catechism have given us an explanation of premillennialism or explained the steps of this or, or how we differ from the postmillennialists or the amillennialists or the whatever millennialists, right? But no, the catechism is, is less concerned with that. All that stuff may be important in its own time and in its own place, but the catechism is especially concerned to bring comfort to the people of God, and that's a key word. And that's why our catechism is often referred to as the book of comfort. Did you know that? Maybe I haven't said that enough. But I should have said that. The Catechism was known throughout the histories of our Reformed churches as the Book of Comfort. Because in so many places, the Catechism aims to make sure that the people of God know what their comfort is and where their comfort lies in each of these truths. That's what makes it such an experiential document, such a, well, comfortable document, such a, a pleasant thing to read for real people who have real lives to live and real sorrows to bear and burdens to carry in this life. I want to emphasize that. Maybe I haven't emphasized that enough as we've gone through the catechism, that the catechism is a book of comfort. Now, let's go then to understand how Christ's return is a comfort. And immediately, uh, when I was thinking about that this week, I thought of this letter of Christ to the church of Philadelphia. There are these seven letters, right, in the book of Revelation, which we love to read. You could see, I put them on that map there, so you can kind of see how they're located. On the left-hand side, you see the Greece, right? And you see the city of Corinth there. But then if you cross the Aegean Sea, that beautiful uh, blue body of water, I've never been there, but people tell me it's just amazing uh, how beautiful it is. And you cross over into Turkey, and then you see those cities, right, that we're so familiar with, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and then Philadelphia. There's Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia was one of the lesser cities, of the other cities that are listed there, Philadelphia was not so important, a lesser city, not, so, not a city that people would have been so familiar with. It was also a city that, was, uh, that had many earthquakes. And again, I, I bring that out because that, that might be important and interesting in terms of what Jesus says to this church. But that's the city of Philadelphia. Now, what about the church in Philadelphia? The church in Philadelphia. Well, the church in Philadelphia was largely, and we would expect this, right, a church of Gentile people. Gentile people. However, oh, and I, sh I should have said this about the city of Philadelphia. Sorry, back to the city of Philadelphia. Within the city of Philadelphia, there was a, quite a number of Jews living. Now, these were, these were Jews Again, not, not Christian Jews, right? These were Jews who still practiced 
and held to the Jewish religion. Uh, you're familiar with the term diaspora Jews, right? The Jews who no longer lived in Palestine, but who had gone out and who had dispersed and now were living in different parts of the Roman Empire. And just like nearly every city in the Roman Empire had its Jewish population, so also the city of Philadelphia. And so they would have had their own synagogue there. And now the church in Philadelphia would have been Christians, of course. They would have been people who believe in Jesus. But many of them, and no doubt there were some Jews that became Christians, but the bulk of the church was Gentile in nature. And I come now to the letter to Philadelphia. The letter that Christ gives to Philadelphia. Let's look at these verses then, if you would, in your Bible. Revelation 3 and verse 7. And to the angel or to the messenger, and we know that this would have been the elder uh, in the church in Philadelphia. And the word given us then is he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Why this imagery of the door, of an open door and a closed door, one who opens and one who shuts? Well, if we think about those Gentile Christians, my friends, we can think about the Jewish people in the town of Philadelphia who would have said to the Gentiles, you have no place with God. You have no access to God unless you become a Jew. Now, these Gentile Christians would have learned something different. They would have learned that when one comes to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the way to the Father, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to God except through him. And they would have learned that it was no longer necessary to be circumcised, no longer necessary to observe all the Jewish laws, that those things had been done away with. Perhaps they were familiar with the preaching of Paul or the preaching of the other apostles, that one came to God through Christ alone. It did not matter your ethnicity. It did not matter if you were an adherent or a practicer of the Jewish rituals and Jewish worship. And so they had come to Christ. And by coming to Christ, they had come to the Father. And they had found reconciliation and salvation and access to God. And they were received by God. They had the sense that their sins were forgiven, that they were adopted into God's family. But not the Jews. You can imagine, you know, Joe Christian in Philadelphia when he meets somebody, the Jew, right? And the Jew says, that's not the, that's not the case. And in essence, what would he do? He would take that door and he would slam it shut. You can't come into God's house. You can't come into God's presence. That door is shut against you. You have no access to God. Now, my friends, is this starting to sound familiar? Again, when I was, when I was studying this, I thought, that's the Ethiopian eunuch. We just had that sermon, didn't we, last week? The Ethiopian eunuch had gone to Jerusalem. And because of his uh, Gentile a background, and because of his being a eunuch, the door was shut against him. You may enter into God's courts. You may not come into his presence. The door is shut. But now comes this message to these Gentile Christians. And I imagine that they must have been somewhat poor, somewhat oppressed, because of other things that are said about them here. But now comes he who is holy, who is true, 
who has the key of David. Now, the key of David, what is that? Well, my friends, we're more familiar with the throne of David, right? That God had made a promise to David that there was a, a son of David coming who would sit on his throne and that his kingdom would last forever and forever. Now, says this one who's writing a letter to the poor Christians in Philadelphia, I have the key of David. In other words, I have the key that opens the door to the kingdom of God. And I have the key that closes that door. And now I say to you Gentile Christians, I say to you Gentile Christians in Philadelphia, that I have the key of David, and I open, and no one will shut. I shut, and no one opens. Now that in and of itself is good information for the Philadelphia Christians, but it doesn't tell them that the door is open to them. It just says that there's only one who is holy and true and who has the key of David and who opens and shuts. Well, let's continue to read. Verse 8, I know your deeds. Let's just stop there a minute. I know your deeds. And I can imagine, my friends, that if you read that, you must think, he knows my deeds. That door will surely be shut tight against me. I know your deeds. The case is hopeless. He knows what I've done. He knows my life. He knows my thoughts. He knows the covetousness that lives in my heart, as the Apostle Paul discovered this morning. That door will surely be shut against me. I know your deeds, says the one who is holy, but I am not holy. Says the one who is true, but I am a liar. I know your deeds. It's almost as if the letter could quit right there. And the Gentile Christians could throw away their religion and be done with it and despair of ever seeing an open door. But then the gospel, my friends, in the next words, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power, and that's why I say these Christians must have been oppressed. They must have been persecuted by the Jewish majority. You have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. What had they done, my friends? They had named the name of Christ. They had professed allegiance to Jesus Christ. And with all the pressure that had brought to bear upon them by the Jewish people who said, you have no access to God. Just being, believing in Jesus is not going to get you access to God. But these Christians, under all that pressure, under all the persecution, with what little power they had left, they clung to it. They clung to the name of Jesus. Notice it doesn't say here, you've obeyed the Ten Commandments very well. I know that you have not taken my name in vain. You've observed the Sabbath day. You've honored your parents. You haven't killed, right? No, because then the door would have been shut. But you have, what does it say? You have not denied my name. Why? Because those Gentile Christians in Philadelphia, my friends, had pinned all their hopes on the name of Jesus. All their hope was pinned on the work, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And with their last grasp, they were holding on to it. And God now comes before them and he says, these people want to slam the door in your face. But I am holy and I am true. And I set before you an open door. 
and no one will shut it. My friends, what a comfort that must have been for the Philadelphian Christians in all their persecution and all their hardship to see that God sets before them an open door. An open door when they expected it to be shut tight. And to hear from the lips of Jesus Christ, I set before you an open door. And we're not even close to being done with the letter. Then, in verse 9, Jesus identifies the enemies. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. Wow, that is strong language. The synagogue of Satan. In other words, the, the rabbi of this synagogue is Satan himself. Who say that they are Jews and are not. Now, they were Jews ethnically. But what, what, what Jesus means here in this letter is they say they are. They claim to be the people of God. They claim to be Jews, right? The, the term Jew is synonymous with being a, the people of God. They claim to be my people, but they're not. They lie, he says in verse 9, who say they claim to be Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. These Philadelphian Christians who'd been pushed to the side by the Jewish people, the learned Jewish people with all their knowledge of Hebrew and the knowledge of the law, their punctilious obedience to every jot and tittle of the law, who had slammed the doors in the face of these poor Christians, God now says, I'm going to cause those men, with all their learning, with all their religion, with all their piety, and all their, their boast, and they're going to come before you, and they're going to bow down before you and confess that they were wrong. And that God actually had set his love upon this people who they had despised and the ones that they had slammed the door on. God says, those are my people and they're going to come to confess it. Maybe even there is in these words, my friends, a promise of salvation for these people. That not only will they come and, and confess it begrudgingly, but that they will even come in true repentance and, and hate their sin. Like this morning. I think we had an example of it this morning. This man who was a Jew so fierce for the Jewish religion, Saul finally came and repented. And he came, literally, didn't he, to bow before the Jewish people and to confess his sin. Maybe even something of that in verse 9 there, that God will by his sovereign grace bring them in faith and repentance to join the people of God. But at any rate, what's most clear in verse 9 is they will confess that the true people of God are these despised Gentiles over here, who you, close, who you closed the door on, who you shut out, you excluded them, but I include them. Ten, because Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Again, not because they were such good Christians, but because they had persevered in their profession of the name of Jesus. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. That implies, doesn't it, very clearly, that there are people who claim to be the people of God, just like these Jewish people here, but they deceive themselves. And God is going to bring an hour of testing in which the gold will be separated. The word escapes me now. The gold from the, what are, the dross, all the other stuff, right? There's going to be an hour of testing. And verse 11. Verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Again, the implication here is that, is that their, their, their strength is weakening, right? They're declining. They're holding on, perhaps just with one hand, to their profession. 
the, the oppression is so severe, the persecution is so hot, right, that they're, that they're growing weary under it. But God says, hold fast, I'm coming, and I'm coming quickly. And then verse 12, more promises. He said that he had set before them an open door. But in verse 12, he continues, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, a pillar, my friends, is a very important thing in any church. We have them here, don't we? But pillars don't come and go, right? This pillar stays in this church. We don't take it out. We might take out a chair or the piano or the baptismal font, but we can't take out a pillar. And now God says, Jesus says, the king of his church says, I open that door to you. You come into my kingdom, into my temple, and I'm going to make you a pillar there. Which means that when you're in that place, you'll never go out again. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. There may come people who say, you're no, you're no, you're no child of God. You're not a member of God's people. No, says Christ, I'm going to make you a pillar. They'll never be able to cast you out from my temple. You'll never be cast out again. A pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And furthermore, congregation, furthermore, three names. I will write on him three names. Three names. Now the first name in verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God. My friends, when a name is written on somebody, that means this person is the property. He is owned by this person. And now God, Jesus, the, the author of this letter to the, to the Philadelphian Christians, he says, I'm going to write the name of my father on you. Not only will the door be open, you'll be made a pillar, but I'm going to brand you. I'm going to mark you as one of my father's children. And then in the second place, and I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. There it is again. Now, this is not uh, uh, writing the name indicating ownership, but rather citizenship. Right? You might say when you, when you go to vote or something, you have to prove that you're a citizen of this country, obviously, but, or a, a member of the Location, right? You have your paper, your, your uh, voting card, or whatever it is, your ID, okay? But now Jesus says to the Philadelphian Christians, I'm going to write it on you, almost as if I'm going to brand it on you. This one belongs to my father. He's a citizen of this city. He belongs to the new Jerusalem. He has the right, that's, that's what it means to be a citizen, right? To have the right, he's entitled to a place in this city. What city? The new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And one more name, the third one, and my new name. That means that Christ will write his own name. What name is that? You know, I thought about that this week. What is that name? It says elsewhere, my friends, in Scripture, that no one knows that name. No one knows that name except Christ himself. It's a secret name. So I don't know what name that is, but I know this, that that name, again, entitles that person 
to all the rights and privileges of salvation in Christ. Three names. Well, my friends, that's the letter to Philadelphia. In my first point of application, I want to begin. I want to begin, my friends, where we have to begin whenever we think about the gospel of God. And that it is necessary, my friends, if we're going to have this comfort of which our catechism has mentioned already, and the comfort which Christ would bring to these Philadelphia Christians, that we see the door shut against us, and that we acknowledge that that door is shut against us justly, that God does no injustice by shutting the door upon us. And the catechism has taught us that earlier, didn't we? We walked that road where we had questions such as I gave here, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. And in a word, my friends, the answer is, the door is shut. God is angry with our sin. God's justice must be satisfied. And so the door is shut. And when we come to the door of God's city, of God's dwelling place, that door is shut against us because He is holy and He is true and we are not. And this is where we begin when we think about the gospel. In that sense, the second coming of Christ is no comfort. But the glory of the gospel, my friends, is that door does not stay shut. If it meant if it relied upon, if it was conditioned upon anything that we had to bring, it would stay shut. But when Christ comes and he walked that way of humiliation in his birth, right? We we talked about those steps, his birth, his life, his trial before Pilate, his death, and his descent into hell. Because of what he has done, God says to us this evening, I set before you an open door. My friends, that has to become the greatest wonder in our life that ever we can experience. To know and to hear from the mouth of Christ that when we expect to be executed and to be turned away into hell forever for our sins, that Christ says to us, I set before you an open door because of what I have done. And when you persevere in naming my name in faith and clinging to the person and the work of what I have done in your place, that path of humiliation which I walked, when you lean on that, and when you persevere, and when you overcome in that name, then that door flies open before you. And that's what the gospel says to us this evening. Now, my friends, I come then to my second point of application, which is the door open. I ask you this evening, do you see the door of heaven tonight? Do you see the door of heaven? That because by the work of Christ, my friends, that door can be open for us. That door can be open for us. And if we're trusting in the promise of salvation in Christ, if we are clinging as those Gentile Christians did in Philadelphia to the name of Christ, pinning all our hopes on his work, then that door is open for us. And I want to say these three things, my friends, about that open door. In the first place, Don't shut the door which Christ has opened. Some Christians do that. And I can assure you, my friends, that Satan is speaking to you that you would shut that door. How does Satan do that? Because Satan comes in your life and he says, that sin that you committed, that cannot be forgiven. And the door goes shut. 
Satan says, that sin you're committing right now, you can never overcome it. You can never repent of it. You can never successfully defeat it. Give up. Don't try to put that sin to death. You'll never be successful in overcoming it. And the door goes shut. But my friends, as a preacher of the gospel this evening, I tell you, don't shut the door that Christ has opened. In fact, truth be told, you can't shut that door. Because he who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David says, I open and no one shuts. And if God in the person and work of Christ has thrown that door open, then you can't even shut that door. And if you go lost because of your own sin and your refusal to repent of it, you will go lost with a door open before you. And so, my friends, think about that. Don't shut the door which Christ has opened. And you know that's a lie. That if there's a voice in your head that's telling you that a sin that you committed cannot be forgiven... That, most assuredly, my friends, is the voice of Satan. Sometimes it's difficult to know our own voice from the voice of God or our own voice from the voice of Satan. But this is not difficult. If there is a voice telling you that a sin cannot be forgiven, that is the voice of Satan. That is shutting the door that Christ has opened. In the second place, my friends, our Lord calls us to remain faithful to persevere, to overcome all these different things, different ways of putting it. That is our responsibility in this world. To cling to the name of Jesus and to the person and to the work of Christ. To cling to it in faith. And all the voices and all the pressures and all the temptations to the contrary have to be resisted by us with a fierce, with a, with a, with a desperate resistance. We can never let those things come between us and that open door. And I'm sure, my friends, there are those in our midst who can think sometimes, will that door really be open for me when I leave this earth? When I come to my dying day, when I come to my deathbed, when I breathe my last, and when I open my eyes on the other side, will that door be open? Will that door really be open for me? That leads me to my third point. Christ says, I am coming quickly. And that word quickly, my friends, speaks to that person who can wonder and question, will there really be an open door for me on the other side? Because Christ says, hold fast what you have. Hold fast to that profession of Christ. Even in your dying hour, hold fast to the name of Jesus. Because I'm coming soon. Now we started this sermon asking, how can the coming of Christ be a comfort for us? For many, it's a terror. But my friends, for those whose strength is declining, and I mean even your physical strength. You feel your life ebbing away. You feel old age coming upon you. The message that Christ gives to the Philadelphian church is such a comfort. It's a rock that you can stand on. I am coming quickly. In other words, I'm, it's right around the corner. The book of James, it says, I'm standing at the door. I'm about to step through. 
And that day is coming, my friends, when the sky before our very eyes will be rolled up like a scroll. And with our physical eyes, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ. I have no idea what that means, my friends. But the scripture assures us that we will see him standing there, coming for those who have overcome, coming for those who have faithfully persevered in their, in their profession of the name of Jesus. He will come, my friends. And then you'll see it. Whatever doubts you may have entertained in this life, my friends, as a preacher of the gospel tonight, I can tell you with joy, then you'll see it. You'll see an open door. You will see that door open before you if you are persevering in your profession of the name of Christ, if you are clinging to that. And to the joy of your heart and soul, my friends, you will see the door open before you, the door that by rights should have been closed. You'll see it open. Why can I say that, my friends? Because I have it from Jesus himself that I set before you an open door. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And furthermore, when you come to stand before the great white throne of God's judgment, of the judgment seat of Christ, and you think, how can I ever stand there who have no holiness within me? I'm not true. Well, because the judge will look and he'll recognize his own name written there. There's the name of God the Father. There's the name of the city of the New Jerusalem. And there's the city of Je- There's the name, well, the secret name, the name that no one knows, whatever it may be. My new name, says Christ. That one has a place in this city. That one has a place in this temple. I've known him from a never begun eternity. And I have loved him. And my son came to this earth to die for him. Give him his place in this temple. No one can close that door, my friends. He opens and no one shuts. That is the glory and the boast of the people of God. That when we are clinging to that name, we have before us an open door. I ask you this question again, my friends. I won't answer it. I'll leave it for you to answer. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Is that a comfort to you? When you hear that you're going to stand and Christ is going to be your judge. I trust that with the Philadelphian Christians, we'll cast our crowns at his feet and give him all the glory. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this service. Just soaking in the glory of the privilege of knowing that when we come to stand before that dreadful throne, Lord, where by rights we should be condemned, where our sin and guilt should sink us into hell forever, that there we may see, because of the work of our Savior, an open door. And there we may have the promise, the promise from your own mouth that you will make us a pillar in the temple of our God. And there you've given us a promise, Lord, that when we stand before that terrible, that great white throne, that the judge of heaven and earth will recognize the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, the secret name, the name that no one knows except Christ himself. And by that name, Lord, by those three names, we will have right and a place, a right to enter and a place within that glorious city. And so we can say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us be the glory, but unto thy name be the glory forever and forever. 
And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now to number 384 in the hymnal, the red hymnal. And here we're going to sing verses 4 and 5 of 384. 384. Come, all who thirst, to you I will my healing water give. Drink from my fountain without price, and so forever live. And so on, then, in verses 4 and 5 of number 384 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.